The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Let's see what God has for us today in Revelation 17. If you haven't been with us on a regular basis, or maybe you're visiting here for the first time, we are going through uh, the book of Revelation. It's the last book in the Bible. And really, it is chronological. The, the Bible begins with Genesis, the very beginning, which makes sense because Genesis means uh, in the beginning, and that's how the Bible starts. It's God's written revelation to humanity, and he wants to communicate with his creatures, and so he gave us the book of Genesis, and that literally tells us how everything began, and that's how Genesis begins. And then it goes from there and how we got into trouble with our first parents, how they were created without sin, and yet they chose to sin, disobeyed, took on a sin nature, and God cursed the earth as a result of sin because he's a holy God. But immediately, because he's a God of grace, he also gave a solution to the sin problem. And early on in Genesis chapter 3.15 is the first promise of a Savior, of the Messiah, who would literally be a seed or descendant of Eve, the first woman. And as we go throughout the Old Testament, and in, specifically in the New Testament, we see that seed promised in Genesis 3.15 is Jesus, our blessed Savior. And so that begins in Genesis, and then we have the history of the world in the Old Testament, looking towards the great fulfillment, which is Jesus Christ coming to save sinners, and that's the New Testament, with uh, the birth of Christ, his ministry for 33 years in his 33-year life, and then his death and resurrection, and then the history of the church. It's all chronological. And John the Apostle was one of the 12 apostles, a young man when Jesus began to work with him and train him. And then Jesus went back to heaven and left John along with the other apostles to start the church, shepherd the church, evangelize the world, take care of the church, write down the rest of the New Testament, which they did. It's a gift from them. They all, the apostles, they all got murdered for their faith, literally, except for John, John the Apostle. He lived a good 60 years after Jesus ascended into heaven, and so at the end of his life, he wrote down the book of Revelation, 22 chapters in our English Bible. So John outlived all the other apostles. He may have died as a prisoner on the island of Patmos, where he's writing this book of Revelation in about 95 A.D., and God gave him this information, and it basically, in a nutshell, it tells us how the world is going to end. Well, it's going to tell us how current human history ends, this world that we live in right now. But really, it's not the end. That's just the beginning. Because Revelation goes on to say that after this cursed earth reaches its climax, then God is going to renew all things. And Jesus Christ will return literally to the earth. He will reign as King of kings and Lord of lords, not in heaven forever, but on the earth first for a thousand years with his people and then after that he will give the kingdom up to the father and then we will go into the eternal state forever and ever that's what the book of revelation tells us so it doesn't end in bad news it ends in nothing but pure joyous rapturous good news the glory of god and the good of his people i think we need some good news don't we 
in this fallen world. That is the story of the book of Revelation. That's why John says seven times, well, first he says in chapter 1, blessed are those who read the book of Revelation. Christian, don't neglect it. Don't be afraid of it. Read it. Be exposed to it. Then hear it. Welcome it. Understand it. Then apply it. If you do, you will be blessed. So as always, we want to be obedient to that command as we deliberately study and read the Word of God and Hopefully you came in with that knowledge thinking, I want to be blessed in the book of Revelation today because that's God's promise. We can be blessed by even Revelation 17. It's, it's a challenge. I'm not going to minimize that, especially if you've never read it or studied it before. It is a challenge. John also promised in Revelation chapter 1, the first verse, that the book I'm about to write, the revelation that God has given me that ended up being called the book of Revelation, very first phrase in the book of Revelation, it's called the revelation of Jesus Christ or the apocalypsis of Jesus, of Jesus, the unveiling and the full disclosure of Jesus Christ in full glory. That is the theme of this book. So one of the other things we should be doing is where is Jesus in our, the passage before us? And indeed, Jesus appears in glory in Revelation 17. So we're going to see Christ in his full glory again. What a blessing that is. Let me first begin by reading Revelation 17, verses 1 through 18. Follow along as I read. I'm reading from the New American Standard. John says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls that we just saw in Revelation 16, came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And so the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness or desolate place. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality, and on her forehead a name was written. A mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drink, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus, and I saw her, I wondered greatly. And the angel said to me, Why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads and seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are, 
and they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. The beast, which was and is not, is himself also an eighth, and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. These will wage war against the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. And he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. Verse 17, for God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. The woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Uh, wow, that was a mouthful. I've been reading it and studying it for over 30 years. I was poring over it all week long. Almost memorized it. It's still hard to read. I wanted to read it up front because I just thought it would be interesting, maybe even kind of fun to go around and ask everybody, just reading it one time face value, and then to ask you to interpret it, see how you would do. Probably be all over the map. Some have probably studied Revelation before and kind of have the idea, oh yeah, some of you have been following along in our study for the first 16 chapters, so you have context and background, so maybe you'd be able to interpret most of it. There are no doubt some of you who know the Old Testament well, particularly familiar with the prophetic books, so this would be easier for you to understand. It's like, oh, this is familiar material. This is right out of Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. And then others would struggle, maybe because you've never studied Revelation before, or you've never heard the book preached or taught, or it's new to you, which is fine. So we're not making any assumptions. We want to start from ground zero and set the context. And so that's why one of my goals, again, and has been in every chapter, because there's so much here, is to, to really give you a big picture of each chapter as we go and zooming in on what I think are the most important truths in each chapter, while at the same time preserving the continuity from one chapter to the next, because it does go in chronological and thematic order, and it's building up to the great climax and crescendo of Revelation 19 and following. So that's my goal as well today. We'll probably read through every verse of 18 verses, but won't be able to exhaust the meaning of all of them, but just going to be picking the main thing just to help you, really, so that you can go home and keep studying this week and the rest of your life, and hopefully have helpful study tools to do that. I would, if I were you, I'd probably start in Daniel chapter 2. After reading that and studying that, then I'd go to Daniel chapter 7. So let's do that. Let's go to Daniel chapter 7. I want to read through quickly some portions of Daniel 7. 
because that really does lay the groundwork for Revelation 17. You can't possibly understand Revelation 17 or interpret it properly unless you are familiar with Daniel, the book of Daniel, from chapter 1 to chapter 12. You just can't do it. Because what we've been talking about all these weeks, particularly since Revelation chapter 3, and then especially uh, Revelation 6 through 16, has been about one main event, and that's the Great Tribulation. And that was first introduced in detail, or with specifics in Daniel chapter 12, about 550 B.C. Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where Daniel prophesied of the coming Great Tribulation. And the unprecedented uh, tribulation that is coming upon earth to punish the wicked and reveal God's wrath. So Daniel introduced the specifics of this era called the Great Tribulation. Jesus reaffirmed that 500 years later in his ministry at the end of his life in Revelation, I mean in Matthew chapter 24, when he, he actually coined that phrase, the Great Tribulation. He affirmed that it was future, it was literal, Daniel, it was based on Daniel. You're supposed to read Daniel not allegorically or apocalyptically. You're supposed to read Daniel as a prophetic book literally. And because Jesus read Daniel literally, Jesus was expecting a literal, historical, great tribulation that Jesus said the greatest tribulation we will ever see that has never been or ever shall be. That was in about 30 3 AD, fast forward 60 years later, John the Apostle, Revelation 3.10, refers to this time, the great tribulation again, the greatest time of trial the world has ever known for the purpose of judging, trying, testing earth dwellers. That's the main purpose of the great tribu tribulation, of pouring, God's pouring out his wrath upon those on the world who don't believe him to punish them, but also to soften and woo some of them to repentance, which would include unbelieving Jews. So that's a big picture, but Daniel is the one who introduced this idea of a great tribulation. Then he has all these visions. These visions in Daniel are difficult. Daniel had the visions, and several times, including in this chapter, he has a vision at night. He is confused. He is overwhelmed. He, and then he says, boy, can somebody explain this? The angel explains it, and then he's overwhelmed all the more. And even after the angel explains it, uh, he is frightened. He is alarmed. He is befuddled. He has questions. He feels literally physically sick. He says he is weak. He, it says he is pale. It happens a couple of times. And even, he's still saying, what does all this mean? What does all this mean? God doesn't answer all of Daniel's questions. One, one thing that God tells Daniel is, you know what? I'm not going to answer all of your questions right now. I'm going to seal it up till the end of time. I'm going to seal it up until the end of time. Then Jesus comes along in Revelation as the Lamb, and he peels away these seals of information for full disclosure of how the world will end. Let's look at Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, this is after Nebuchadnezzar, 500s B.C., Daniel is in Babylon. He was a prisoner, and then he rose in the ranks. And he's a gifted prophet of God, a godly man, a holy man. He stands out. He's distinct. He's unique. The kings keep having an eye on this unique Daniel Hebrew. Daniel had a dream. He saw a dream, visions in his mind. Probably at nighttime as he lay on his bed. And then he wrote the dream down. And then he gave the summary. 
Here was his dream. It had four beasts, verse 3, four monster creatures. Four beasts. Those are the main characters. Verse 4, the first beast was a lion with wings. We find out that is the kingdom of Babylon. The Babylon that existed in Daniel's day. The very Babylon that Nebuchadnezzar was ruling over when Jerusalem was attacked and Daniel was taken as a prisoner. So that was the current kingdom. It's described as a lion. Then there's another kingdom that takes over and conquers Babylon. That's verse 5. There's another beast, a second one resembling a bear. That's Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia would come in the end of the 6th century B.C. and conquer Babylon, overthrow it. That's Medo-Persia. And then the Medo-Persians, powerful world empire at the time, ruled for decades, and even more than that, That's the second beast. Then there's the third beast, verse 6. Kept looking. There's another one, a third beast. Looks like a leopard. It's quick. It moves quickly. It has four wings. It's even mentioned further in the book of Daniel. We know that that is the kingdom of Greece. Here God, in detail, predicts the kingdom of Greece before Greece even exists, two centuries before it ever exists, especially under Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great representing the leopard kingdom. And Greece conquered Medo-Persia. This is just world history. If you know world history, you're tracking with me. Then after the third beast of Greece's empire, there's a fourth beast. Verse 7. Daniel gives information elsewhere, as does the book of Revelation, that we know that after Greece, uh, the Roman Empire rose up and conquered Greece. And then the Roman Empire eventually falls. And then there's another beast after the Roman Empire uh, that will be the fourth beast that Daniel's describing in chapter 7, verse 7. This is a future kingdom. It's different than the other three because the other three were in existence or uh, going to transpire before Christ came. This one is at the end of the world. Those other three beasts he just described were not at the end of the world, but this one, the fourth beast in verse 7, is at the end of the world. It's different. It's unique. It's unique for a lot of reasons. It's unique because it'll be the most powerful. It'll be literally universal in its scope, breadth, and rule and dominance. And it'll be more wicked than any that have come before, and the others that came before were quite wicked and compromised. So there's a lot of unique features about this end-time beast. It's actually a kingdom. The beast is a kingdom, and it's spearheaded by an individual, the Antichrist, who is also called a beast. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful, and terrifying, and extremely strong. And it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the other beasts. So the future coming kingdom at the end of the age is different than any other world kingdom that has ever existed. If you just look over history and look at the great empires and, that have ruled, all the way starting with Egypt, powerful, Compromised, pagan, wicked, brutal. Egypt and then Assyria. After that, same thing. Then they attacked Israel. And after Egypt, then there was Assyria. Then after Assyria came Babylon, particularly under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar, and they conquered Assyria. 
So you had Egypt, and then Assyria, and then Babylon. These are the world empires of history. And then Babylon was attacked by Medo-Persia. And then after Medo-Persia, you had the Greece, Philip of Macedon, and then his son Alexander the Great in the 4th century. Hellenized the entire world. So you had Egypt, and then Assyria, and then Babylon, and Medo-Persia, and then the Greece, Grecian Empire. And they began to dissolve, and then Rome rose to power for centuries, the Roman Empire. So you had Egypt and Assyria, and then Babylon and Medo-Persia, and then Greece and Rome. Keeping track? Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. There's six. Six world kingdoms. After the Roman Empire, there will be a seventh. It is unique. It is different. It's universal. It's all-powerful. It is yet future. That's what he's describing here. John the Apostle picks up on this in Revelation, describing this yet-coming seventh world power. Oh, I thought the United States was a world power. Well, not really. Well, it's not mentioned in the Bible. But I thought the Soviet Union was a world power. Well, not of significance to, to get in the Bible. But it's literal. It's coming. It's dreadful. It's terrifying. This beast, the end of verse 7, and it was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Ten horns. Keep that in mind, because we're going to see that in Revelation 17. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little horn. So... The ten horns represent ten kings at the end of the age. These ten kings have autonomy, power, authority over their regions. They will come together, kind of like ten mafia bosses, which has happened. The bosses all come together. They have nothing but ill intent. They have their territory. They have nothing but self-interest in mind. But if they can compromise with their enemy to build up their coalition of strength against an enemy, a shared enemy, they'll do that. So that's what's going to happen. There are ten dominant kings in the world. These are literal kings representing literal kingdoms, literal nation states that is yet future. These ten kings will coalesce. They'll coordinate. They'll make a pact. They'll unify. They will arise. This is yet coming. And I can't say, oh, it's the ten European, or the ten nations in the European Union. The ten members. I can't say that because that keeps fluctuating and changing. There were seven, and then 17, and then down to nine, and then at 10, in the 1970s. Oh, we're back to 17, and then it's and on and on. We could go on another, uh, another 500 years of world history for all we know. Time is nothing for God. So can't try to look for fulfillment in the headlines of your newspaper, necessarily. Just stick with God's word. But there were, these ten horns are ten kings, and they will coalesce to come together. Verse 8, while I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one. So you got these ten horns or ten kings. They're going to come together in the future. They're going to be on a mission. They're going to be unified. They have the technology to literally control the world, at least by way of information, propaganda. They control space with all of its satellites. All the oceans, which cover 75% of the world, even though there's 8 billion people, they have the ability to control everyone. If they can just consolidate and amass 
power. And then what 10 kings need to control the world of 8 billion people and 195 current nations, and I mentioned, alluded to this last week, is, well, wow, if you're going to get down to 10 kings, but you've got 195 nations, what do you do? Well, you either get rid of the superfluous 184 nations that you don't like, and there are a lot of little ones that could just be gobbled up very easily. Or many of those nations can consolidate into one greater nation because they have a common cause. And if you looked at a current map today of the little nation of Israel, and you typed in um, Muslim nations in the Middle East, and you come up with about 50 nations, and right dead center in the middle is a little dinky piece of land the size of New Jersey that isn't the same color as the 50 around it, the Muslim nations, because it's Israel. And easily dozens of those 50 Islamic nations surrounding Israel could at some point, didn't take much, because they do have a common cause, and that is to drown the nation of Israel into the Sea of Mediterranean, because that's what they say all the time. That's their mantra. And they can consolidate and say, hey, we've got 50 nations. Let's join together. Let's take our regions, and let's turn these 50 nations into three governing nations. All in favor? Aye. So that's one easy way to do it. And you can do that all over the world. You get somebody in power over here in uh, South America who rises to power, they consolidate. Somebody over here in North America, boom, there's your two kings there. There's five over there in Asia. So anyway, so that's possibly how God could very easily do that. It wouldn't take much at all. That's even patterned in world history. So that's who the ten kings are. They're called horns. Horn just, why horn? Because a horn has power. What are you afraid of uh, on a bull? Not his tail, his horns. So that's the symbolism of the horn. They have power, they have authority, they're dangerous. So these ten kings, and then verse 8, uh, another horn, a little one came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots. So it wasn't voluntarily, they were ripped out. So these ten kings are going to come together, consolidate, come up with a plan, and then at some point the ten mafia bosses and then when that's all set, then another mafia boss who's bigger than everybody else, has more power than everybody else, everybody fears him more than anybody else, and he pushes his way in, and he pushes out probably the top three who have authority. They are no longer a threat. They're gone. Now everybody fears this new horn, this new guy, this new mafia boss. He's the big cheese. He's the new chief. He elevates to power. This is yet future. So that's what's going to happen because God's told us. Ten kings, ten kingdoms, rising to power, unified, and then the top three get pushed out, and now it's the rise of the Antichrist. This probably all happens about midway through the tribulation, three and a half years into it, maybe a little before. And then for the next three and a half years, it says, uh, we already read how God gives authority to the beast, the Antichrist, to reign supreme for three and a half years. So that's what's going to happen. So that's what the horns are. They are future kings and kingdoms. Uh, three horns. Kings are going to be pushed out. This one's going to rise to power. This is the coming Antichrist. He's going to violently, uh, in Al Capone-like style, smash the three heads of these three horns with a baseball bat, probably, and take over. Uh, and behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, so it's a human intelligence. Mouth uttering great boasts. That's one of his things. He's, he's an orator. He is vile. He 
has no filter. He's got a silver tongue, verse 11. Silver tongue from the pit of hell, unfortunately. Verse 11, then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the Antichrist or the horn was speaking. I just can't stop talking. I kept looking. Didn't need to carry a gun because his weapon is his mouth. Very, that's how powerful words are. Just using that propaganda, speech, controlling everything by manipulation, calculated deception. That's how Hitler prepared his speeches, by the way. He didn't just get up there and flippantly rattle on. His speeches were studied, prepared, crafted, short, memorized. He practiced in front of a mirror with his gestures, the tone of his voice, and it was persuasive. That's what this beast will be like. Uh, I kept looking until the beast was slain. That's the good news. He's going to get killed. And his body was destroyed, given to the burning fire. Uh, verse 12 is for the rest of the beast. Their dominion was taken away by God, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. So these kings are going to rise. They're going to be totally wicked and evil. They have one evil cause in the world. It's going to be horrendous. Part of what they're going to do is slaughter all followers of Jesus Christ that they can find on the earth in the future. And yet the Bible is clear. God is, court, he's, God is orchestrating all this. God is in control of all this. The authority they have is ultimately from God. And actually the evil things they're doing are fulfilling God's ultimate plan. God isn't doing it. They are. But God is in control of all things. He works all things together for good, even bad and evil wicked things. God doesn't like evil, wicked things, but he works all things, even evil things, for good, for his glory, and to bless his people. And he's even going to do that with these kings. Go down to verse 17. These great beasts, these four kingdoms I just described, Babylon, etc., are four kings who will arise from the earth. They're not only, they, so Daniel calls them kingdoms, but then he also calls them kings, because there was a personality attached to every great kingdom, and that's typically always true in world history. A personality rises to power. Verse 18, uh, all four kings who will arise from the earth, verse 18, but the saints are the highest one, Christians, believers, overcomers, Christians, those who are born again. That's you, you're in the Bible. The United States didn't make it into prophecy, but you did, if you're a Christian. It's your biography, it's right here. If you know Christ, verse 18, but the saints, the saints, the saints, that's just, that's the word that the uh, apostles in the New Testament used to refer to a believer, a holy one, one, not that you're perfect or sinless, but you're set apart, you're set apart as a precious one for God and his use, kind of like the fine china hiding over there in the cabinet that nobody's allowed to touch because it's set apart for holy occasions, that's a holy one, that's a saint. What's your name, what's your first name, Christian, and then just put saint in front of it. St. Clifford. I like it. But the saints of the whole one will receive the kingdom. There it is. This is after the seven-year tribulation. We are going to receive the kingdom. That's good news. And possess the kingdom forever. For a thousand years and then into eternity. For all ages to come. I can't even imagine. That just, is, just explodes the human mind. If you try to envision that, meditate on it. Eternity. What is this going to look like forever and ever? I can't imagine. Forever and ever? Mind-boggling. 
the saints will inherit the kingdom and possess it forever. Verse 19. Some of you may be confused. Well, Daniel was too, because he says, then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast. I, I needed help in, with my hermeneutics. And it wasn't a generic meaning. It was the exact meaning, a detailed meaning. And the angel had grammatical, historical, literal hermeneutics from God and explained it at face value, literally what it meant. He does that a couple of times. So we don't need to guess. We don't need to allegorize. We don't need to make things up. We don't need to over-symbolize, over-symbolize literal things out of existence. I wanted to know the exact meaning, and so he got the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and, the, and the, also the meaning of the ten horns, which were on his head, and the other little horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, namely the horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, which was larger in appearance than its associates. Verse 21, and I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. That's describing the seven-year tribulation, particularly the last part. The Antichrist will rise up with great power, and he will attack believers, and he will attack Israel, and he will be continually waging war for at least three and a half years with the holy ones, with the saints, with those who follow Jesus, and he will be successful. He will overpower them. He will arrest them. He will shut them down. He will slaughter and kill many of them. So, very specific. Well, how long is this going to go on? Well, not forever. Three and a half years until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. The end of the tribulation. We will find relief. And then that time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. There it is. When do we get to take possession of the kingdom of God at the end of the tribulation. Literally, the earthly kingdom. There is an element of the kingdom of Christ going on right now. Primarily in the spiritual realm. It's real. Just because it's spiritual doesn't mean it's real. If you know the king, you're in the kingdom, right? You have the keys to the house, but you just don't have the house yet. You have the authority. You have the relationship. You have the legal rights to it. But the total fulfillment is yet coming. Verse 23, thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on earth which will be different from all other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth. There it is, it's universal. This isn't just some guy ruling locally in the Middle East thousands of years ago. The whole, he will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns out of the kingdom... Out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. And then it just goes on to describe what this Antichrist will be like. Okay, with that as background, let's go to Revelation 17 now, and we'll just read through, and it's just going to make our reading go much quicker and easier because you'll be able to identify with some of the terminology that Daniel was using. By the way, it goes on there in Daniel 7 to say that the Antichrist uh, will rule for a time, time, and half a times. He will rule for a time, that's... One year, singular, a, t a time, times, plural, that's two years, and half a time, that's half a year, that's three and a half years. So in Daniel 7, predicted the Messiah, I mean the Antichrist would rule for three and a half years. Then in Revelation 12, in describing the Antichrist, John tells us that the Jews and believers will be persecuted and chased down in the wilderness for a time, times, and half a time. He didn't make that terminology up. He got it right 
out of Daniel. That's why I keep saying, to understand Revelation, you've got to understand the Old Testament and the prophetic books. There are over 500 allusions in the book of Revelation from the Old Testament, over 500. Not a direct quote, but allusions, which is a reference to. It's very specific. So let's go ahead and read Revelation 17. We'll just read through. Uh, I broke it up into three parts. First is the revelation, or the information given to John about the main characters. That's the immoral woman dressed in purple and fine stones who rides the seven-headed beast, this woman. That's what this, this chapter is about, this woman, whoever she is. So that's revelation. So that's verses 1 through 6 is revelation. Revelation about this woman, whoever she is in the future, and then also the beast, the Antichrist. The revelation, then in verses 7 through 14, is the explanation. So first, we get revelation, or just information. It's like, wow, that's weird stuff. That's a lot of stuff. Help me interpret it. Well, that's verse 7 through 14, the explanation of this information in Revelation. So we have the revelation, verses 1 through 6, and we have the explanation, verses 7 through 14, and then finally, 15 through 18, is the desolation, which is the word used in verse 16, or the same thing, destruction. The destruction of this woman, whoever she is. Because he promises that in verse 1, chapter 17, verse 1, an angel with the seven bowls comes to John and says, hey, let me tell you, explain to you, show you the judgment of this great harlot. So this whole chapter 17 is a judgment. So let's go ahead and look at verses 1 through 6, which is the revelation or the information about this immoral woman and the beast who are yet future. Who is this woman? It's mentioned in verse 1. Then one of the seven angels... Now, if you weren't here last week, or to remind you from last week, we looked at chapter 16, and that was just the seven bowls. John described the seven bowls, and they were poured out quickly. They're at the end of the seven-year tribulation. The bowls, uh, one of the words John uses to describe the bowls are judgments or plague. calls them plagues, like the ten plagues of Egypt. And they are from God, and they are on the earth. And these seven bowls were seven plagues that are yet future, that God is in control of, that God is pouring out on the earth for the purpose of punishing wicked people. That was clear. And on the seventh bowl, and they are in chronological order, and on the seventh bowl, we saw last week in 16... Starting at verse 17, the seventh bowl was poured out by one of the angels. There's all kinds of noise in heaven, loud noise, lightning, thunder, a massive earthquake uh, that hits planet Earth and divides the world into three with its epicenter in the great city, which is Jerusalem. We know that Jerusalem is the great city because John has already referred to Jerusalem as, quote, the great city, and it fulfills prophecy from Zechariah 12 through 14 and other places. So, uh, and then in verse 19 of the seventh bowl judgment, it says, Babylon the great was remembered before God during the seventh bowl uh, judgment. So verse 19, the seventh bowl judgment, one of the main things that happens is God remembers Babylon. What does that mean? God doesn't forget. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Babylon needs to be punished. Babylon has been a longstanding 
perennial enemy of God and his people since the very beginning. We saw that it was introduced in Genesis chapter 10 and 11 at the beginning of the nations of the world. And one influence that rose up at that time was in Babel or Babylon, that city over in the Middle East, over in modern-day Iraq, over on the Euphrates River, a city that still exists today with people in it. Genesis 9, uh, 10 and 11, that was the rise of the city of Babel or Babylon. Whatever it was, 2500 B.C. And false religion started there. You have no hint or trace of false religion existing in the Bible from Genesis 1 to Genesis 10. Can't find it. Genesis 11 on, it's all over the place. So, and that's where false religion began. False religion is described all throughout the Bible. God calls it spiritual, or he calls it idolatry or spiritual fornication. He calls it whoredom. Immorality, if you will. Spiritual immorality. Playing the harlot. And it's synonymous with idolatry, worshiping false gods or having a false religion. And all the prophets in the Old Testament condemned it as such. Whenever there was false religion, false worship going on by either pagans like in Nineveh, or even among the Jews themselves who compromised and began to worship idols, God diagnosed it and said the same thing. He said, you have played the harlot. You're practicing Idolatry, which is spiritual fornication and whoredom. The entire book of Hosea was written to condemn that. Porneia, immorality, spiritually speaking. You've cheated on your one spouse, you've cheated on God. You've cheated on your creator. It's the most egregious sin in the history of mankind. It still is. And it's still rampant around the world. So... Really what Revelation 17 is, is just an expansion in greater details of what the angel, the seventh angel, said in verse 19 of chapter 16. God remembered Babylon, that wicked, wicked city, and which became the headquarters of false religion for the rest of the world history. So it became a byword for false religion, idolatry, spiritual immorality. And so chapter 17 is a comment on the seventh bowl. As a matter of fact, big picture, chapter 17, verse 1, actually doesn't end until chapter 19, verse 5. So chapter 17, verse 1, all the way to Revelation 19, verse 5, is actually one unit. So John didn't write with verses. He didn't say, okay, and lick his uh, whatever he was writing with on the papyrus there, or chiseling away in a stone. Say, okay, here's chapter 17, verse 1. Oh, chapter, that's 18 verses. Got to change subject. Now go to... Didn't do that. So if you got a scroll from John in that day, and you're reading it, this long old scroll, there wasn't any separation between chapter 17, 18, and 19. It just read in one continuous paragraph by paragraph. And you knew where the transitions were based on context and specific terminology that are very clear that John uses. Metatauta, after these things. Or then uh, I saw another vision. These kind of things. Very clear transitions. So uh, big picture. Chapter 17, verse 1 all the way to chapter 19. This all goes together. So uh, what John is describing in chapter 17 is the judgment upon Babylon, which he calls the great harlot. Chapter 17 and also chapter 18 is God's judgment upon Babylon in the future. 
And it culminates in chapter 19. All goes together. So the revelation, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, John the apostle, saying, Come here and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. If you flip over to Revelation 19 or just listen, or uh, actually verse, chapter 21, verse 9, this phrase is almost synonymous. Chapter 17, verse 1 says, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke to me, John, saying, Come here and I will show you. And then you go to chapter 21, verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came to me and said to me, Come here and I will show you. These are parallel accounts, clearly. In chapter 17 and 18, he is showing John this wicked, evil, vile woman that is a city on the fallen earth. Then right after that, starting in chapter 21, he says the same thing, and then he shows John. He compares it with another city that is holy and beloved and is the holy city of Jerusalem described as the bride of Christ. Two women, two contrasts. The seven bulls came, uh, that angel came and spoke with me, come here and I will show you the judgment. So what is this chapter all about? It's about judgment. It's about wrath. If you're looking for uh, happy verses to warm your spirits and tickle your soul for your daily devotions, don't go to Revelation 17. Read this and then go have a cup of coffee, jog around the block, come back and read uh, Psalm 51 or something like that. But I'm going to show you the judgment. I'm going to show you God's wrath poured out like you have never seen before. And this judgment is on the great harlot, whoever she is. She sits on many waters. He tells us at the end of this chapter who the many waters are. You don't have to be a creative, inventive, pioneering commentator to come up with some allegorical interpretation and speculation of what you think the many waters are. Because John tells us what the many waters are in verse 15. The waters which you saw where the harlot sits, they're people. People of the earth. Not that complicated. As a matter of fact, much of the imagery John gets explained to through the, the angel himself. Oh, I saw ten horns. What are those? Well, they're ten kings, by the way. Oh, okay. Well, I saw seven heads of the beast. What are those? Well, those seven heads that you saw are seven mountains. Well, what are the seven mountains? Are they uh, Rome, the city of Rome? Because Rome has seven... No, they're not, they're not Rome. They're not even mountain. Let me finish, John. The seven heads are seven mountains, and the seven mountains are seven kingdoms. That's what they are. Oh, okay. So he explains it for us. So come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on the many waters. So here's this great harlot. She's described in this chapter. Uh, she sits on many waters. She's actually sitting on a beast with seven heads on many waters. In other words, and the many waters of the people of the earth. So this beast, this lady, this woman, whatever it is, has control of all the people of the earth, of over earth dwellers. She has control of everybody who hasn't been sealed by God. She has control of everybody except those who truly know Jesus Christ. She has control over the entire world except for the remnant that has already been taken away of believing Jews that are going to be hidden in the wilderness and protected by God for three and a half years that we saw in Revelation chapter 12. Well, who is this woman, by the way? Since the whole chapter describes her, let's get right to it and look at verse 18, the last verse of the chapter. Who is this woman? Is it Jezebel? Is it another some lady? No. Verse 18. The woman whom you saw is the great city. 
What great city? Well, the great city of Babylon. Great city of Babylon resurrected. That's at the epicenter of power and attention at the end of the age. So the woman, so keep that in mind. So the woman he's talking about represents a city. Just pick a, one of the most influential cities here on planet Earth today, the hub of all activity, power, authority, money, wealth, influence, and that will be this city at the end of the age. So the woman represents a city. And I believe it is a literal city in the future. And it's the great city, the great city, verse 18, the great Babylon, the great Babylon, the great Babylon, Babylon the great. That comes from Nebuchadnezzar looking over the city that he built in Daniel 4, and he said, this is Babylon the great that I have built for my glory. And then John picks up on that terminology, and he keeps calling Babylon, Babylon the great. And so the woman that you saw is the great city, which reigns over, not just over the Middle East, not just over Iraq, over the kings of the earth. It is universal rule. It didn't already happen. This has never happened. This has never been fulfilled. This universal reign by one kingdom with one king over the whole earth has never happened. We saw this Revelation 16 verse 14 says that God is going to unleash demons from the abyss who are going to empower human beings, the Antichrist, the false prophet, to perform literally miracles and also which go out these demons to the kings of the whole world, a phrase he uses more than once. The whole world. And in this context and in your original Greek language, whole world means whole world. So there it is. That's probably the most important truth you need to walk away with. You read Revelation 17. Man, this is confusing. Who is this woman? Hey, let's talk for the next hour over lunch and everybody go around and you give a guess of who you think the woman is. And then everybody gives 13 different answers. No, John tells us it's the great city. It is yet future. It's Babylon. It's by the Euphrates, by the way. He already mentioned that in an earlier chapter. By the great river Euphrates. Euphrates has been mentioned a couple of times. Uh, he says in this chapter that it's by many waters, verse 17, the Euphrates. Babylon currently today is by the Euphrates River and many waters. There's channels and rivers and springs and the, and the river itself. That's how it's described. That's how it's known. The great harlot who sits on many waters. Verse 2. Well, more information about this great harlot lady, whoever she is. It's a great city. Well, this city with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality or porneia, particularly and specifically spiritual immorality, spiritual fornication, idolatry. So, main truth, God is making a judgment on someone or something in this chapter. It's a, a chapter of judgment. It goes for two and a half chapters. It is a judgment on a woman. The woman is a city, so it's God's judgment on a city. It's a worldwide, universally known and influential city. It is a future city. That's what God is judging. But not only is it a city and a city of influence, it's a religious city. Or it's a religious influence is what it is. So it's not purely secular. Satan is a primary. Satan is not secular. Satan is religious. Satan knows the Bible. Satan quotes the Bible. Read uh, Matthew four. He's genius. So this great harlot, which represents a city or an influence in the future that dominates the world, uh, influences the kings and the rulers of the earth. So these ten future kings or kingdoms are going to join together and they're going to be swayed and influenced initially to fulfill their cause through religion, through false religion, compromised religion, camouflaged religion, maybe 
uh, using the jargon of Christianity to pull in a lot more people. Who knows what it's going to look like? And the kings of the earth are going to be partaking in this. They're, they're willing to go along with, well, I don't care, just whatever the religion is, as long as we can fulfill our cause. The ends justifies the means. Like all the secular people that rule in our country who have no use for religion whatsoever, and especially of Christ and the Bible, and they serve in the United States Congress or Senate. I mean, there's some solid believers, and then there are others who are atheists serving in our country, yet they don't have a problem with a Senate chaplain. And Bible verses on the walls where they spend their time all the time, they don't have a problem with that. Hey, man, if that gets me to the Senate and the House of Representatives, bring it on. I'll tolerate this stuff. I'll even quote it here and there. Chaplain, bring it on. As long as they don't talk about Jesus too much. But anyway. So the kings of the earth committed immorality, spiritual fornication, and also those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. So this future worldwide religious influence headquartered in Babylon is going to influence all the rulers of the earth. It's going to influence all the earth dwellers on planet earth. They're going to have a common thing that knits their hearts together. It's going to be false religion manifest through all kinds of idolatry. They're going to be so swayed, it says they are drunk. They are just filled with the lust and loyalty and commitment to the leaders of this new world power. Everyone else is an enemy. Everyone else has no expression or opinion. They need to be shut down. 100% demand for towing the line. Uniform loyalty to this rising one world religion. That's what this chapter is describing. A one world religion. God considers it spiritual whoredom or immorality. So the angel fulfills the promise and he takes John away in the spirit so he has a vision we don't know how that was. He's probably still on the island of Patmos. But he's completely 100% conscious and sensitized to receive God's word. Verse 3, and he carried me away, the angel did, in the spirit, into a wilderness, a desolate place. A place that had been, that is going to be destroyed, and it looks like it's already been destroyed. It's rising with smoke. No life around. It's a desolate place. A wilderness. And I saw, and there's just a prominent thing there, and it's a woman She's sitting on a scarlet beast. This is the beast that we saw earlier in Revelation. Scarlet beast, red beast. Uh, scarlet could be uh, representative of blood because the Antichrist will slaughter people. It could be representative of sin because of Isaiah 118. Uh, scarlet is in reference to sin, which is appropriate for the beast. The beast is the Antichrist, where he's inherent in it. And the beast is full of blasphemous names. So the beast is religious. He mocks God. He hates Christianity, but he's got his own religion. He's a blasphemer primarily because his religion is focused on himself. And he blasphemes God and he blasphemes Jesus without hesitation. He's got seven heads. What does that mean? Well, we're going to see the seven heads are the... Seven hills, which represent the seven kingdoms of world history. John tells us that later. The seven heads. So here's, she's writing this beast. And one of the heads of the beast is the Antichrist of the future. And then these six other heads are kingdoms that have already, from our point of view, have already transpired in world history. 
So one of the seven heads is the kingdom of Egypt. One of the seven heads is the kingdom of Assyria. It's already happened. One of the seven heads is the kingdom of Babylon. One is the kingdom of Medo-Persia. One of the seven heads is the kingdom of Greece. That's already happened. One is the kingdom of Rome, from our point of view, that's already happened, that was happening when John was alive. And then the seventh head is this future kingdom that will arise, that the Antichrist will take and consume control over. And the idea is there's continuity of all these historical kingdoms because they were all evil, they're all wicked, they all have one thing in common, and they despise God and his truth. They hate believers, they hate Christ, they want their own way. They would have all willingly attended the Tower of Babel, focused on self to rise to heaven to exalt their greatness. And they, they have continuity throughout history. So this future king has continuity in a lineage that goes back through every one of these successive kingdoms. They're not independent of one another. And really the big picture is they were inspired and motivated and moved and manipulated by Satan himself. They were all demonically controlled. That's really the main common denominator. So the future world religion that will eventually be swallowed up and controlled by the Antichrist for a short period will be demon, satanically driven. The seven heads. And the ten horns are those ten future kings that help consolidate power and hand it over to the future Antichrist. Verse 4. The woman was clothed with purple and scarlet. So this, this is a description of the future world religion that just dominates the world. By the way, Adolf Hitler, you know how he assumed power and influence over the masses? was through religion. You read the history of the rise of Adolf Hitler that started in the 1920s, and then when he went to jail and he wrote Mein Kampf, and you read that, and then began to make his little speeches and rise in influence in society and then in political power, and went all the way from the 20s all the way to the 30s and eventually till his death in 1945. But in the early days, he embraced religion. He was even... Uh, a tolerant, more than tolerant, of the Bible. So he allowed, then eventually he banned the Bible from Germany. You know when he did that? After he consolidated all of his power. He didn't condemn and ban the Jews until after he had consolidated all of his power. So he used religion. That's what the coming Antichrist is going to do. That's what these ten kings are going to do. They're going to use religion. They're going to use a worldwide religion to get to the place that they need to be. Uh, and this religion is going to be typified by this. Not humility and like Jesus. You look at Jesus' true, true religion and the apostles. They had nothing. Jesus had nothing. Didn't have a place to lay his head. Didn't have a home. Same with the apostles. And the early church in Jerusalem, true believers. They loved heaven more than they loved this world and this world's goods. And the contrast here is this religion is affluent. This is health and wealth, baby, and prosperity, like you have never seen. Because verse 4 says, the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet. Those two, that's royalty and luxury. Things glistening, bling, and on and on it goes. Purple and scarlet, wealth adorned with gold. Literally, it's a compound word, golded with gold, gilded with gold, gold upon gold, gold everywhere. Adorned with gold, precious stones, pearls, 
having in her hand a gold cup, gold, everything's gold, full of what? Abominations. She just drinks in abomination, drinks in evil, drinks in blasphemy. Completely unguarded. Like I said, no filter. We're, we're eking towards no filter and overt, blatant blasphemy here in America. It used to be as the decades go by, and then in the 90s it was when the years go by. Now when you read the news, it seems like when the days go by. It's just spiraling. Not out of control because God is in control. Spiraling with an ultimate purpose. Abominations, unclean things. You know what that refers to? Literally, dirty, filthy vices. That's what's going to characterize this false religion. Not holiness, not purity, not wanting to do the right thing, do the good thing. It's like uh, described in the prophets where they turn everything upside down. Now, literally, what God says is good is now evil, and what God said is evil is now good. Kind of like when God created the first two human beings, male and female, that was a good thing. Not anymore. No. You can't say I'm a man just because I have XY chromosomes, just because my creator made me that way. So that'll typify. And, so, and then, once again, immorality, referring to false religion, idolatry, and sex. By the way, false religion all throughout history, false religion always has either overt manifestations of a perversion of sex and sexuality or hidden somewhere in its practice. That's a common denominator of false religion. Distortion of sexuality. Perversion. It's going to be full-blown with this coming worldwide religion. She has a name, this false religion, designation by God, and on her forehead a name was written. You know, in the days of, uh, I think it was Rome, the prostitutes and the temple prostitutes, they had bands on their foreheads so that you would know they're a prostitute. I'm available. Harlot for sale. Whore. On the forehead. And this is also in contrast to others who have names on their forehead. Right? Those who follow the beast have the mark of the beast on their forehead. But it also said those who were sealed by God had God's mark on their forehead. So that you can clearly make a designation she is clearly marked out in the future. We don't know who she is now or where exactly the details of all this, but on her forehead there was a name written, a mystery. Mystery there is used as a noun. Babylon the Great, that's her name. Her name is not Mystery Babylon. Her name is Babylon the Great. And it's a mystery. It's a mystery meaning we don't know all the details of it now. Uh, up until John's time when he revealed it and unveiled it, nobody knew anything. And then God gave this mystery and unveiled this information to John, making it known. So a mystery in the New Testament is that which has not been known but is now revealed through God's revelation. That's why it's a mystery. How the world is going to end was a mystery to Daniel because he didn't have all the details. Now John unveils it. It is a mystery no more. He gives us all this detail. But this end-time religion is called Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, the mother of whores, the mother of prostitutes, and the mother of the abominations of the earth filled with sin, and I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints. And so it's a religion hell-bent on slaughtering followers of Christ because they can have no, tolerate no competitors to their false religion. Oh, let's just tolerate everyone. Love, 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 says the world. No, they don't really believe in that. Let's tolerate everybody's view. Oh, except for those Christians.
So this worldwide dominant religion, part of the articles of its faith is slaughter Christians or believers of Jesus wherever you find them. And she loves it. They're not ashamed of it. They don't try to hide it. It's an article of their faith. This is what we do. The only other religion in the history of the world that even exists today that prides itself on slaughtering those, the infidel, is Islam. It's in the Quran. They do it. They do it every day. They put it on YouTube. You can go watch it. This will continue. So this isn't totally unfamiliar as a reality. When I saw her, I wondered. I wondered. I, I was alarmed. As you can imagine, why? Let's go on an explanation. I've given you a lot of the explanations so we can go quickly here. What does all this mean? Verse 7, And the angel said to me, the angel who held the bolt, and speaking to John, Well, why do you wonder, John? Why are you so alarmed? Why are you so uh, befuddled? I'll tell you. I will tell you the mystery, what this information means, of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. Well, the beast that you saw was... He was a historical entity. He is it, and he was and is not simultaneously the beast, which is a kingdom or a king. Let's just say the Antichrist. Okay, John, this Antichrist, he was and he is not. That's strange. What, what do you mean he was and he is not? Oh, and by the way, he is not currently now, and he's about to come up. Now, he's speaking about this. So in the future, there's going to, an antichrist is going to arise. He's going to exist. He's going to be a real man. And that's already been described to us, described in Daniel. It's a real man. He's the antichrist. And he actually is unveiled during the first half of the tribulation. He makes a peace accord with Israel, first three and a half years. So they'll look back and say he was, he existed. Then he was not. What happened? Then he died. He received a fatal wound. He died. Literally, we saw that in Revelation 13, verse 3, verse 12, verse 14. It's interesting the terminology used. The Antichrist received a fatal flaw. He was plagued to the death. Thanatos, to the death. He died, literally. And then he was therapuo. He was healed. That's the word used for Jesus when he brought people back from the dead. And then, verse 14, it talks about, and he was risen, risen, risen from the dead. So that's, how can you have a man who was and is not? Well, he exists, and then he dies, so he is not. But then he rises from the dead through the power of Satan, and he comes back to life. And now he is a satanically inspired, risen human being, come back from the dead. That is the Antichrist that rules the last three and a half years. This is a real man coming in the future. No wonder John was in wonder. The beast that you saw was, is not, and is about to come up. There it is. He's going to rise from the dead. We already talked about that in Revelation 13. He's going to rise up out of the dead from the abyss, from the pit of demons. That's where he gets his power. Well, Satan can't raise anybody from the dead. How do you show me a Bible verse that says Satan cannot raise anybody from the dead? Satan could do anything that God allows him to do. God allowed, Job, uh, God allowed Satan to do some horrific things in Job 1 and 2. So God isn't going to allow Satan and his demons to bring the Antichrist back from the dead. 
and he, then he will be possessed by Satan himself. The only other time that we know that to that degree was with Judas. Was it is not, it's about to come from the pit, but the good news is he will go to destruction. He will be shut down after three and a half years. After the seven-year tribulation, God will judge him, kill him. And those who dwell on the earth, earth dwellers, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, they will wonder and they will see the beast that he was, is not, and will come, and they will see that he is miraculous. He rose from the dead. That is amazing. I want to worship him. I want to follow him. I will give my life for him. I will kill followers of Jesus for him. That's the implication. This makes me want to be pre-trib. Come, Lord Jesus. That's the promise of Revelation 3.10, by the way. Uh, verse 9, here's the mind which has wisdom. Okay, pay attention close, John. I know this is complicated stuff. The seven heads and the seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings, five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain for just a little while, three and a half years, and the beast, the Antichrist, which was and is not, who comes back from the dead, is himself also an eighth beast. He's an eighth beast when he comes back from the dead. But he was one of the seven. So he was part of the seventh kingdom before he died. He dies. He comes back. He's resurrected. He has new power, satanic power. He's operating in a new way. Everybody fears him like never before. He consolidates new leadership. He has a new plan. He's taking to greater heights. He defiles the temple. He erects a statue of himself like Nebuchadnezzar in the Jewish temple. He demands that the whole world worship him or death. That's the eighth kingdom. Verse 11. He's one of the seven and he goes to destruction. Verse 12. The ten horns which you saw, they are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom. It is yet future, even from John's day. They are kings at the end of the age. But they receive authority and they receive authority. So it's, they don't conjure it up on their own. They don't manipulate it. God gives them the authority. We'll see that in verse 17. They receive authority. Nobody has authority in this world without God having it granted it to them, whether they earned it, worked for it, got it legitimately, or get this, got it illegitimately. They have authority. God gave it to them. And they are accountable, first and foremost, to God for that authority. They will be held accountable. Be sure your sin will find you out. They receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. There is a, that phrase is very specific, and it does mean for a short period of time. Jesus said that, very short period of time. Not longer than three and a half years. 42 months, 1,260 days. The kings, these ten kings, that write, they have one purpose, single-minded. Because God gives them one purpose. And what is their purpose? To give their power to the Antichrist. To raise him up. To prop him up. To put him in a launching position. Verse 14. These will wage war. These kings will wage war. Get this against the Lamb. Oh, that's a mistake. They're going to wage war against the Lamb. That's Jesus. And the Lamb will overcome them. And if you're a Christian, you're an overcomer. You're an overcomer because Jesus overcame and will overcome again. A Christian is an overcomer. Nike. Nike. It's the Greek word. Power, overcomer. The Lamb will overcome them. This is in the future at the end of the age. This is the last battle. This was already mentioned in Revelation 16, the last battle there, verse 14, a battle uh, where God gathers all the kings of the earth for war against the great on the great day of our God, the battle of Armageddon. We already talked about that. And that's when Jesus returns to the earth after the tribulation. 
They'll lose to Jesus because he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And get this, and those who are with him are the called and the chosen and faithful. We will be involved in that battle, in the battle of Armageddon, according to Revelation 19. You'll be a soldier in that battle if you're a Christian. You'll be in a resurrected body. You'll have a white robe. You will be in glory. You will be sinless. You will be perfect. You'll be riding on a white horse that flies in the air. How cool is that? Your own horse? And you know what's even cooler in this battle? It's like, I'm, I'm going to be in the way back. That the head of that man, that's Jesus up front. He is King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and I know what he's going to do. He's going to land, he is going to smash and smite all of his enemies completely and totally, so that hopefully by the time I get there and land, it'll all be done. Why am I saying that? Is it in the Bible? No, because I'm a chicken. But anyway, <laughs> sounds good. Waging war, the saints will be there. We will help Christ. We will rule in the aftermath. We will do the cleanup. We will reign with him on the earth. Revelation 5.10, ruling with him in glory. We will judge the angels. It's going to be amazing. If you're a micromanager or a usurper of authority, which is human nature, at this time we'll be able to do it in an appropriate way without sin. It's going to be glorious. It'll be nothing but honor and glory to Christ, who's the King of kings, and the Lord of Lords. That's our future. That's our faith. Man, this is good news. It's just temporary, the bad news. Verse 15, let's close with this. The destruction, the beginning of the destruction and desolation of the future false worldwide religion. So there's going to be the rise of a worldwide unified false religion that is grotesque, manifest by idolatry and sexual immorality, in total opposition to pure biblical Christianity. But it's going to have a downfall, and it's orchestrated by God. And actually, uh, God doesn't spearhead the downfall. He moves the heart of the Antichrist to destroy this false religion in the future. Verse 15, And he said unto me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues, so it's going to be a worldwide religion. Everybody's going to embrace it. There won't be any atheists or agnostics. They will all give their loyalty and allegiance to this religion and the beast. Verse 16, And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot. So the Antichrist is going to rise to a point where he hates this false religion. Okay, that's it. I've had enough. Okay, I've consolidated enough power. Okay, Bible's illegal now. You can't pray in these buildings. Synagogues are closed. Churches are done. Mosques are transformed. No more. It's all about me. That's what's going to happen. Because the beast is going to hate the harlot. He's going to hate this religion. And he's going to make her desolate, meaning he is going to destroy it. He's going to destroy this false religion. Destroy religion. He's going to make her naked. That means expose this false religion for what it is. That's what he's going to do. There's going to be utter hypocrisy at the root of this false religion. And the Antichrist, he's just going to do a propaganda experiment with the news and expose it. So the whole world can see uh, utter hypocrisy, have nothing to do with it. They're compromisers. They stole all the money. They just wanted your money. Have nothing to do with it. He will be successful. That means make her naked and he will eat its flesh and get this burner up with fire, literally fire. All the buildings will burn across the world that had anything to do with this false religion. Headquartered in Babylon. Burning with fire. Think Seattle, burning with fire. Think Portland, burning with fire. Think many recent big cities in America, burning with fire. Verse 17, well, how's this all going to happen? Well, for God has put it in the hearts to execute his purpose. 
by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. This is all God's plan. Nothing is a surprise. It's all happening exactly as he predicted and planned all throughout history. It's going exactly where he wants it. It's going to the glorification ultimately of Jesus Christ as King of Kings. Verse 18, the woman whom you saw is the great city known for false religion which reigns over the kings of the earth. There it is. In closing, if, so our hermeneutical approach to Revelation and Revelation 17 is take it at face value, take it literally, which sets us apart from a lot of other evangelical Bible interpreters where they want to symbolize, allegorize everything. And for whatever reason. Oh, this, this can't talk. One of the main critiques they have of taking literally is there's no way this could happen. This is too literalistic. There is no way this can happen. So that's a half-truth of a statement because some of this stuff is mind-boggling. It's unbelievable. That's, that was Daniel's problem. He saw this. as like, wow, I don't understand it. And how is this going to happen? John did the same thing. He wondered and was like, are you serious? Please explain this to me. So that's partially a legitimate argument. How is this going to happen? Well, here's how it's going. So there are prerequisite things that still have to happen in order for Revelation 17 to be fulfilled literally. I agree. And here are some major things that need to happen before these get fulfilled. So look out on the world's horizon and you can follow the news for the next uh, 10, 5, 50 years and just see the trajectory and see what God is doing. Because at some point we're going to end up here in Revelation 17. But we're not there yet. Prerequisites. Number one, Israel needs to build a temple in Jerusalem. That hasn't happened yet. There's a mosque sitting on the temple site. That will happen. Daniel 9, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Number two, Israel needs to be in the land for all this to happen. Historically, that hasn't been true. In 1517, there were 5,000 Jews in the entire land of Israel. Today, there's 7 million Jews in Israel. Almost 50% of all Jews today on planet Earth live in Israel. Almost 50%. They're going to get to almost 100%. That's the promise of Leviticus 26. They're going to be gathered from all over the world the land of Israel. Hasn't happened yet. Never has happened in history. It will happen in the future. Number three, all nations will hate Israel. We're not there yet. Israel has a lot of friends. The main friend Israel has is the United States. But according to Joel chapter 2, Joel chapter 3, verse 2, Zechariah chapter 12, Revelation 16, Revelation 17, all, Psalm chapter 2, all the nations of the earth are going to go against uh, war against Israel. All the nations of the earth. That's what the Bible says. Right now the United States is a friend of Israel. So that's a prerequisite. Number four, so the United States needs to change, it, needs to change its position towards Israel. It needs to become an enemy of Israel. After 240 years. We're not there yet. We're not even close. It will happen. There are cracks happening. First time in the history of the United States of America, we have elected officials who overtly and openly spew anti-Semitism publicly, and they're applauded for it. That has never happened before. But according to the Bible, we have to get to a point where the United States is either just totally dissolved and irrelevant as a world power, or they just have to turn categorically 180 and absolutely despise Israel. That is going to happen. Number five, Babylon needs to be rebuilt. It's not technically an inhabited city today. It's a, a park that you can go visit. It has to be rebuilt and become, the, not only does it have to be rebuilt, number six, it has to become the dominant world power on planet Earth as a city. 
dominant as the headquarters of a world religion, dominant politically and dominant economically. We'll see that in Revelation 18. That will happen. Number seven, 195 nations need to become 10. I explained earlier how that can happen, and it will. Number eight, there needs to be a one-world government. Clearly. For those at the top can control eight billion people, which leads me to number nine, you need the technology to pull that off, and we have it. Along with the technology to pull that off, you need universal fear, and we have it. In addition, you need demonic power, and the Antichrist will have it. And then finally, number 10, the world will, you need to believe that the world is going to just grow worse and worse. And it is. And the Bible promised that. But the world looks out and they say, oh, we're ushering in the utopia. The world is getting better. That's their view. The Christian view is, the biblical view is, no, it's getting worse. And they're saying, utopia, utopia. And that's what they're getting people to believe. And that's part of the mind control and deception to unify the whole world against Christ. And they, like I said, I need, they need technology, universal fear, demonic power. You know what else they need? They need a cause. Today, if I were to pick some causes to unite everybody around this one world government against Christianity to control 8 billion people, it'd be the cause of go green, the environment. That's universal. Everybody agrees. Every world government today agrees to that, except for the United States recently. Go green. And the other one, oh, we've got a health crisis on our hand. After 11 months, the world is still shut down because of a health crisis. And now, read the news. Oh, we're working on mandated vaccines for everybody on planet Earth. You can't get on an airplane unless you have a vaccine and a card to show it or a mark on your forehead or your wrist. You can't buy, you can't sell. Isn't that interesting? It's the world in which we live. So, that's the bad news. The good news is, go back to Revelation 17, 17, or 19, God is, or 17, God is in control of all this. God is in control of all this. And as saints, we overcome and we will reign with Christ in glory. That is news to go to lunch on. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day and the, the opportunity again to come be with the saints, to worship you, to sing to you, to learn from your word. Thank you for being our teacher through the Holy Spirit. God, no doubt many of us hearing all this can be like Daniel or John in fear, questioning, wondering, Crying out to you, God, I need your help to understand it. And I need your grace to have the courage to believe it and live in light of it. And we know that you will provide that for your people. We thank you. We give you all the glory in Christ's name. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.